Last week, a group of scholars and scientists, including 13 Nobel Prize winners, met to discuss where in the world are we at this moment in history. And they came to the unanimous conclusion that we are in a moment of crisis worldwide like they've never seen before, a catastrophic event they believe is on the horizon. Their rationale for this is the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Now, just think about it. We come to the point that in a suitcase, someone could carry a nuclear bomb that would literally level a city. So they see this widespread hatred between people, division between people, and they see the very real potentiality of that taking place. And then they have studied geopolitical politics, and they see the deep divisions anywhere you look in our world, any nation, any culture, people at one another's throats. Then they see the viruses that are beginning to appear, and they speculate they will see some viruses that will come that will have no medical answers, and millions of lives could well be lost. So they put all of this together. They call it the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and they have set that doomsday clock. The doomsday clock came into being in 1947, two years after the explosion of those atom bombs, and they put a clock there that all of these brilliant futurists meet and speculate and decide what time it is for humanity from a secular perspective will be virtually obliterated. During the Cold War, the clock was set at seven minutes till midnight. Other times, every year, they move the clock down as they seek to determine the perspective as to where we are as to that doomsday moment of 12 midnight. This past Wednesday, they met and they set the clock at a hundred seconds till doomsday. In other words, in their opinion, for the past 70 plus years when this has taken place, we're about a hundred seconds. Never do they feel has the world been as close to catastrophe as we are this very moment. I read that, and I said, Lord, we thank you that you are the author of history, and you have your hand on time. A part of the reason they feel we're at this moment of extremity 
is because of the division we now see in America. We are, as a people, without question, deeply, deeply divided. The red states want less government. The blue states want more government. And every time my new president issues a presidential executive order, we're moving, I didn't know whether to say further apart or farther apart. You know the difference? Farther apart means distance, literal distance. Further apart is a metaphor that means that we can be together, but yet totally divided. And I couldn't decide whether we're moving farther apart or further apart, and I came to the very clear conclusion that both. Separation. Division. And this is where we are. It's amazing to me that those who are in power today want to take down the wall and all those barriers that define us as a country. Let everybody in anywhere. Nobody, no, no vetting, no speculation. Just come on in. Take down the walls. Have no boundary for the United States. At the same time, that party wants to build a wall around the Senate and the House so that they can be protected from the people that elected them. I can't understand the logic of this. We are af not afraid of those who would come anywhere, anytime, any background, anything at all to come into our America, but those who have been elected are now building a wall to protect them from the people they're more afraid of who cast votes that put them in office. I can't figure that out. But it shows the depth something of the division which we find ourselves. And let me share with you a personal thing. My challenge, my challenge as pastor call to divide the word of God is to separate evil from political prejudices and ideas. That's difficult to do. The church is to speak and the Bible speaks on moral issues against evil, but we have to be so careful in that we can incorporate our own political views and call evil those who disagree with us in the political realm. That is a warning. And some of you know that I am not a Trumpite, I am not a Bidenite, I'm not a Jebusite, I'm not even dynamite. But I can tell you, in this moment of division, we seek answers. How divided are we as a people? Just go back and take the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. About half or more of our country can't even make that pledge. I pledge. I put my name behind allegiance, loyalty to the flag. What is the flag? 50 stars, 50 states, 
The red, white, the stripes are the colonies. What does the red stand for? It stands for blood that has been shed to protect our country. It stands for courage. What does the white stand for? It stands for purity and transparency. What does the blue stand for? It stands for steadfastness and firmness. So we stand and say, I can't pledge allegiance to that. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and we're no longer united. And to the republic. And there's a tremendous challenge today as to whether or not we should continue to be a republic. You know the difference. A democracy, everything is decided by majority vote. A republic, you elect people to office, and they, in turn, represents we the people in office. We are a republic. Some say, oh, we need to be a democracy. If we were a democracy, and the president was elected by popular vote rather than the electoral college, as far as we can see in the future, our president would always have the ideology and philosophy of California and New York, and all the rest would be left out of the equation. You mark that down. So therefore, I pledge allegiance to the republic for which we stand. One nation under God. Do you think we're one nation under God? We absolutely are not. We were founded on that basis. And by the way, that's the primary reason that we are so divided. There is a movement in America, colleges, universities, scholars, even the business world. There's a movement in America to take America and make it totally secular, totally humanistic. Mention God in education, you're in trouble. Mention God in the business world, you're in trouble. Mention God almost anywhere in the basic entities, and now it's even being challenged as to whether or not we can have a family that's in God and of God. You see where we are? We're moving rapidly toward what was represented in the Union of Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic, the USSR, in which by their decree of their government, they were an atheistic nation completely void of God. We are moving rapidly in that direction. One nation, not under God. You see, that's the reason we're so unified. If you have a, a centralized authority, something which you can rally around, one nation under God, then there's hope for unity. There's a desire for unity. Indivisible, that's not true. With liberty, liberty encompasses the freedoms that we have, and the basic freedoms of the First Amendment have been totally kicked out or slowly diminishing right before our eyes. And justice for everybody. No prior situations, no selling out for all. When that cannot be recited and respected and honored, the flag which represents 
all that we have, the Constitution, the bylaws, the frameworks that we put together, the government we call the United States, that is the basis of division. Now, what do you do with division? How do you get people together? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. The essentials. You have to agree on the essentials. Under God, that's an essential. In the essentials, what? Unity. Say it all together. In essentials? I thank all five of you. In essentials? In non-essentials? Diversity. In non-essentials? In essentials? In non-essentials? In all things. That is the formula for taking division and divided people in the secular realm together as well as in the realm of believers. We must understand this. Where do we see this? Where is it put together? Is there a word from Almighty God? If there's a hundred seconds according to doomsday clock until the end of civilizations, we know it, how we need a word from the Almighty. Where do you find it? Clearly in the book of Corinthians. Corinthians. In fact, in the very early verses, some we've already studied, you can see this formula for unity. We can see in the essentials there is unity, and we've already looked at it in our study. Verse 4, following, we saw clearly the essentials were mentioned. Let me remind you of them. Beginning with verse 4, Paul says, I thank God always because of who you are, your identity. You're a Christian. That's an essential. You know God receives Jesus Christ. You're a Christian. Then he says, I want you all to be reminded of all the gifts you've received, the abilities, the talents you've received that God has given you. Then he said, I want you to know the direction in which you're headed. And God has cleaned up you and cleaned up me and made us righteous in the sight of God, and we are headed in the proper direction now and when we leave this life. And then he said, remember who you know. You know Christ, relationship with the living God. These are essentials, ladies and gentlemen. This is not optional. This is basic ABC 101 Christianity. That's the essentials. What are the non-essentials? We're going to talk about that. And it, Paul talks about it beginning with verse 10 all the way through here to verse uh, 17. He talks about non-essentials. He talks about how in the church, what was going on? A very contemporary phrase was going on. Identity politics. Have you heard that lately? In other words, in the political world, they are so skilled, all of them, to dividing us up into groups. Oh, this is the group that represents this. This is the group that is this. And they have to keep dividing us in a group. In the church, 
we have all of it together. There are no groups. There, are, there is no division. But in the political world, political politics, and I think Lyndon Baines Johnson, in my opinion, the most corrupt president who's ever lived, but all the returns aren't in yet on the rest of them. <laughs> if you doubt that and want to debate that, you read Cairo's four-volume study of Johnson's life. When you read that, you come back and see if you disagree. The most corrupt president, though he did some good things, Civil Rights Act was good, other things he did. I question his motives because of the character that he represented and was. But I, I can tell you, he started, I think, identity politics. When he would go to speak, he would carry in his pocket, given by his political advisors, what this group wanted to hear. It didn't matter what he believed. He'd talk to teachers. He'd tell those teachers exactly what they wanted to hear. He said, oh, I'm for you. He would go and talk to business people. He would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. Bang, bang, bang. Man, I am with you. He would go and talk to the unions. He would tell them, oh, this is exactly what I believe. And wherever he would go, he'd pull out that card, see what they wanted to hear, and that's exactly what he'd tell them. Identity politics, keep us divided. Ladies and gentlemen, we need desperately men and women in public life that have core convictions, and this is what I stand, and this is what I believe. It doesn't matter who, when, where, or how, and we got to get rid of, of all this partisanship that is totally ridiculous and silly. I'd rather be diametrically opposed to someone's political thinking than to think they're lying to me and deceiving me about what they really believe and what they really stand for. We're divided. In essentials? Oh, you've forgotten. In essentials? In non-essentials? And that's what you have. You have non-essential things in the church. And then Paul tells us how to deal with those that we disagree with. Oh, this is a challenge. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, my family, he's saying, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, in these first 10 verses, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned six times in 10 verses. What's he telling us? He's telling us we're not under God as a nation, but the church is under the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason we can have unity, see? And on the essentials, we've talked about them. And then the non-essentials, he says, this is how you handle it. And he says that you all agree with one another in what you say that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Not rope people, but in the overall authority we're under, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, this becomes a reality. He said, my brothers and my sisters, see the sweet conciliatory tone. Come from Christ's household, Cleo, from the household, and inform me there's quarrels among you. Trey Gowdy, y'all know, former representative of South Carolina, served eight years in the U.S. Congress. In his recent book, he said, 
those eight years in Congress, as I talked with those who did not agree with me on the other side of the aisle, he said, my knowledge, I did not change the mind of a single one. Brilliant, Christian, logical, dynamic. We know him. He's been here. Let me tell you something. We have to appeal with a tear in our eye and compassion in our heart when there is divisions among us. We don't, he's going to get down to dealing with some very serious things if you've read 1 Corinthians. He's not going to pull any punches. But he begins by saying, this is the tone that we must use. We're in the business of winning, persuading, listening. Speak the truth in love. So then he talks about the division. By the way, these divisions are peripheral things. They have nothing to do with theology, basic understanding of God and truth. But he talks about the peripheral bit. He said, look, listen to what he says. He says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. That's Hebrew word for Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. How do you like that? And they're all divided up, following personalities in the church. And one of them says, boy, I follow Paul. Now, Paul's writing. And Paul says, you follow me? Those who followed Paul, I wonder who they were in the church. Remember, this is a greatly diversified church in Corinth, a big metropolitan city, people from all walks of life. And they say, I follow Paul. In all probability, that were the Gentiles who had no background in the Torah in Judaism, and they came to know Jesus Christ, and they'd heard Paul say that we have freedom in Christ, and therefore they said, freedom, I can do anything I want to do. They looked on freedom as license. So they said, boy, we like Paul. Man, he is solid. We, we follow Paul. Another group said, no, 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 no. I like Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria. Alexandria was a citadel of learning in that day, had the largest library in the world. So here was this Egyptian who was Jewish, and Apollos was a charismatic speaker. Man, when he stood, there was a presence, there was an awe. His vocabulary was amazing. And he would take Scripture, and he would use it in a different way. He, he would take Scripture and he would allegorize it. In other words, he'd say, well, this stands for that and that stands for that. And they'd say, ooh, I like Apollos. He is so brilliant. Others would say, oh, no, no, no. We like Peter. That would be the Jews who were in the church there. And they would say, Peter represents those who believe that when you become a Christian, you had to first of all become a Jew and get circumcised and follow all the laws of the Jews. Then you become a Christian. They said, we like that. They're the old-time, hardcore fundamentalists. And then there was a fourth group that says, well, all of you follow those people. We follow Christ. There's always some super pious somebody in a time of this and that. Man, I'm the one that's got it all together. I really know what Christ wants. I wish all you heretics did. You know how that works? And Paul says, no, nah, there's no division here. And then he asks some, himself some rhetorical questions. <laughs> and I, I love how he said verse number 
10, he says, 13, he says, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Paul's writing these words. He said, I wasn't crucified for you. See, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And then he talks about those he baptized and those he didn't. And then he comes down and he shows here, he shows here how to speak the truth in love. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Listen, division comes and we think we can get everybody together. We can compromise. Do you realize that Jesus Christ in his life never joined forces with the Herodians, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Romans? Why? Oil and water can't mix together. And there was no mutual grounds. And so the division in Israel remained even after Jesus rose from the dead. So sometimes we compromise and we miss out. I I read about a guy in New York who made a lot of money and he always wanted to be a rancher. And so he brought his family, he and his wife, his two children, a boy and a girl, young man, young woman. They came to Texas, bought a ranch. They wanted to get in the cattle business. And so a friend of his from New York came down to visit him. He was talking to him and said, my goodness, you, you got a beautiful, beautiful ranch here. Uh, wh- what have you named your ranch? And he said, well, we've gotten a big family squabble. He said, I want to name it one thing. My wife is determined to name it something else. He said, my son wants to name it something else. He said, my daughter wants to name it something else. And we fought and we're divided and went on and on until finally we decided to take all the names that we wanted and put it together in one name for the ranch. He said, therefore, the name of my ranch simply is the Bar X, the Susie Q, the Flying W, and the Lazy Z Ranch of Texas. And his friend says, well, you got it all together. I want to go out and see some real Texas cattle. And the guy said, regrettably, none of them survived the branding. (laughs) You see, We think to bring everybody together, no matter what, is the way it works. That's not true. Because the way it works biblically and the way it could work, even the secular world, is that in essentials, are we in kindergarten? (laughs) Is the choir asleep? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, in all things. Yes, yes, and yes. So Paul is giving us his prescription right here in the Scripture, exactly that broad, very workable, practical outline that we've placed ourselves under. Paul says, look, this is what unifies you. I've already read it. He said baptism. He wasn't belittling baptism. When we're baptized, we make a profession of faith, and it joins us moving from this life to the old life, the old sin, and now the resurrection. Baptism brings us together in the family of God. Also, the gospel. And we said the word gospel. He said, what is it? It's good news. 
You want a clear definition of the gospel? Read in the book of Acts the four great sermons in the book of Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 10. And you take the essence of those four great sermons, what do you have? You have Jesus, the Messiah, who fulfilled all the prophecy written hundreds of years before. You have the, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you have the promise that he will come again. He will bring down the curtain of history according to his timetable, punctuated and authored by God himself. And then there's a call to receive Christ and to have a brand new life in him. That's the essence of the gospel. It unites us. That's the essentials that we have. The diversity of names and personalities, that's not theological. That is the peripheral things. That's the non-essentials. Therefore, we have diversity. But in all things, we have love. And where do we see love? Best demonstrated. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? How is the cross? He says right here, it's laughter. It's foolish to those who, who don't get it. They're perishing. But he said to those who get what the cross is, it is the power of God, and the power of God alone can bring us together. You see, the cross does two basic things. Number one, the cross, the vertical part goes all the way up to heaven, and that vertical part takes the division that you and I have with us in God. Did you know that without the cross, you are divided from God and God is divided from you. And therefore, it is Jesus' death on the cross that takes care of the vertical divide between you and me and God Almighty. If anybody thinks they can just go to God anytime and pray and ask without first of all confessing and getting right with him, you see, the fracture between humanity and God is taken care of on the cross. That's the manifestation of his love. Isn't it? The vertical part. It makes you and me right with God through Christ on that cross. And then we get the vertical part right. Then the cross also settles everything horizontally. We have problems with others, difficulty with others, conflict with others. You see, when I have a problem with somebody, you know what I do? I go to God and say, God, let's make sure that, that we've got it together. I go humbly and confessing and make sure I got this. And then all of a sudden, he gives us the power to get all the vertical divisions together. So that's the love of God, vertically, horizontally. And at the cross, understand one thing. There in Corinth, they were divided. They had the Romans, patricians who wore their fancy robes. They had the Corinthians there who were covered with their royal vessels. They were in the church. They had slaves who were there. They had hardworking men and women who were there. They had those who were in poverty. They had those who were very successful. They had everything in the world in that church at Corinth. It was totally diversified. But at the cross, at the foot of the cross, folks, all of that didn't mean one thing. The patrician with his royal, with his beautiful robes, came to the cross, and the slave came to the cross because, remember this, nothing in my hands I bring, 
when you come to the cross. But simply to the cross, we cling. It's the love of God. It's how we get together right with God and right with one another. And it's very, very flat there. You don't have, I don't have a thing in and of myself and in and of yourself we can offer to God and say, Lord, do you know? No, 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 no. It is flat at the cross as his love is poured out for those who go there and kneel there, fall on their face there. All of a sudden, there's no division between you and me and God, and all of a sudden, the divisions that divide us begin to disintegrate. You see, let's whisper it now. In essentials, in non-essentials, now let's shout this last one. Ready? In all things, love. In the Philippines, 36-year-old man was driving his motorbike down some back, back country roads, and a little black dog came out barking at him. And the dog kept on barking, and he wasn't just barking at the bike. The dog would run ahead of him and bark and, and run off to the side, and he said, you know, what, what does this dog want? And finally, he figured out the dog wanted him to follow him. And so he got out off the motorbike, and the dog was happy, and he began to walk at a good pace, and he walked right behind him. And the dog led him to a trash pile, and he saw there a brown blanket. And he went over, and he lifted the brown blanket, and there was a newborn baby, placenta intact, umbilical cord. And he picked up the baby in the blanket, and he went back on his motorbike, and very carefully, he rushed that baby baby to the hospital and, and the nurses came out and the doctors and they cleaned him up and, and the dog followed him all the way back to the hospital and a little while they came out and said you know you rescued the baby just in time he's going to be fine he's going to be fine and, and I'm sure we'll find a family that will be delighted to adopt him and then he went out was telling all of his friends about the heroic dog that led him to the baby, that saved the life of the baby. Rescue story. Then his friend says, well, what happened to the dog? <laughs> he said, I don't know. He said, let's go see if we can find him. So a group of them been walking around that whole area in the woods and on the street until finally they came to a garbage dump and there was that dog, astray, emaciated, mange, terrible health. They went and got that dog and took him to the vet and got him cleaned up and cured. And sure enough, a family came and said, I want to have that heroic dog as my dog, as my pet. That's a true, great rescue story. True, I think, great rescue story. The dog saved the baby, and then the baby saved the dog. Isn't that something? There's something about an unwanted baby in history, isn't it? 
Mary had an unwanted baby, an unwanted pregnancy that was ordained by God through the Holy Spirit. And it was that unwanted pregnancy, the child was born God, man, and died on a cross so that we might be right with God and right with our fellow man. Division. God brings it all together. Incidentally, <laughs> that baby was born, that Filipino baby was born this past December the 24th. 